This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Um, so, as Allison mentioned, um, I, 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 we started talking about imagination, and, and in part because I direct this center, the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination here at UCSD, where we're trying to understand imagination and then think about ways we might more directly address uh, imagination as a phenomenon. And, and so then this comes around to thinking about what, uh, how might we think about imagination and its role in human origins. And I think we have maybe at least two ways to think about this that we're going to be exploring in today's program. Um, so one is, you know, what are the dimensions of our imagination that give rise to our humanity? And, um, you know, these particular characteristics that allowed Homo sapiens to create our anthropic era. And another is the critical ways in which our imagination creates knowledge about things that are beyond our ability to experience them, whether it's about far-off places or far-off time, both in the future and in the past. And so in particular, I'm very interested and curious about how we imagine something as distant from our experience as the origin of humanity. so, but it begs the question, just what is imagination? And so imagination, it's, you know, it's kind of a mushy term. Um, it's, um, it can mean so many things that it might end up uh, meaning almost nothing. Um, so is there a way we can start to think about how we approach understanding the phenomena of imagination? And so we might start by looking at what uh, smart people have said about imagination. And so, um, so the, the kind of poster child for a smart person is Albert Einstein, right? And so Einstein said quite a few things about imagination over his career, and just one of these is imagination is more important than knowledge. Knowledge is limited, but imagination encircles the world. And so Einstein might have been a pretty smart guy, but this actually says almost nothing about imagination. Um, it's very inspiring. Um, but the only thing I really take from this is that imagination is extensive. So that's a characteristic I can draw from it. So maybe someone who has a little more stakes in the game can, say, can give another kind of shading of imagination. And Maria Montessori, an educator. So imagination is probably a very important thing for an, for an educator to say something about. And for Montessori, it was imagination does not become great until human beings, given the courage and the strength, use it to create. So... Um, so she actually, that's kind of, she's kind of, you know, coming down a little negative on imagination in this quote, you know, that, that creativity is important to her, but imagination might be a little bit frivolous. Um, and Carl Sagan, you know, another kind of smart person, um, says that, uh, gives us another kind of even, maybe another kind of warning about imagination, that it's going to take us to places, to worlds that never were, which, which sounds kind of scary, right? Um, but without it, we can't, live, we can't go anywhere. So he kind of redeems imagination that, well, in the end, we probably actually need it, even though we've kind of, it's flown us off to some place that, that doesn't even exist. But I, I kind of start to turn to some things that I think start to shed a little more value on imagination. And of course, the first one I pull up is an artist, you know, Mark Twain, who says that you, 
you can't depend on your eyes when your imagination is out of focus. And now, to me, this starts to actually give us something valuable to think about because it starts to connect the imagination to our senses. And so there must be some relationship between experience and imagination. And um, so, so I think Oliver Sacks kind of puts a number of pieces together that I think are really critical to think about. That every act of perception is to some degree an act of creation, and every act of memory is some degree an act of imagination. So we start to connect perception, memory, and imagination together as interrelated phenomena that are you know, quite important. Um, and, and so if we want to start to find how do we, how might we, think through exploring that, that connection. And I think art is, the, is you know, a really valuable place to think about this. I think, art, I think of art as this kind of laboratory of imagination for a number of reasons, and you know, one mentioned here by the philosopher George Raymond. Um, but, but art, for both how art is made, but equally as important for how art is experienced. And so as an example, we can start by looking at this, uh, this fresco in the Church of St. Ignacio in Rome and start to trace through maybe a couple of ways in which the imagination is working to make this a thing. Um, so first of all, you know, we note that it's this trompe l'oeil. Um, it's using these, this perceptual trick that you know, was figured out called perspective um, that uh, tricks us into thinking that something is a space when it's just a flat plane. And they do it here by extending the, the trompe l'oeil part is because they're extending the architectural features with this kind of imagined architectural feature. And it also uh, then connects that imagined extension of the, this church into this entirely imagined place called heaven. And so it situates it in a story space, which is this incredibly powerful attraction that we have to our, our, our underlying cognitive need to make sense of things. And it populates that, that space with a bunch of figures that look a lot like the kind of sweaty, smelly things that are standing all around us on the floor of the church. Um, but, of course, they're up there in, in heaven. But all of it's just made from these little daubs of, of, of paint, right? These little colored, colored pieces of pigment. Um, but our perception, um, you know, doesn't pay attention to the, to the small detail differences. We, co- we abstract from it and cohere it into what we think is the phenomena that it likely is, which is it's probably like a person or an angel, um, the, f- the fictional person. And so artists always exploit these capabilities and deficiencies in our, engage- in our senses to engage our imaginations on so many levels. And so we all know, you know about how you know, cinema works. It's, we don't actually see things that are moving. We're just seeing static frames that are, that are shown to us so quickly and with some ordered coherency between them that we can't help but think that it's a dep- depiction of something in motion. Um, so it's depicting something beyond what it actually is. And this has always been you know, a, 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 a desire and, a, and an operation of art. So even in these uh, cave paintings from 30,000 years ago, we started, the artists start to try to develop methodologies to show something that's beyond the, the thing that's actually there, to show something in motion in the, with this static medium. Um, and by doing that, they are directly engaging our imagination as, you know, as much as they're engaging our senses. Um, so art, we can see, is this collaboration between our senses, our memories, and our imagination, 
which is also just the equation for reality itself, right? And so if we want to start to think about how we might understand that, um, you know, I've, I've, we've, we've started to think about how imagination is a phenomena that takes us from one moment to the next, that takes us from those moments to the near future, and then takes us from that near future to think about the far future. Um, we can also think of it maybe as having different areas that it kind of functions, that goes from the neurological to the cognitive to the social, that takes us from thinking about our kind of personal fate to our local, global, and even cosmic fates. So I, you know, so I follow the same mistake that I just, you know, uh, laid on Einstein, where imagination is everything everywhere, right? So, um, but within this, now we actually have a little bit of a rubric that we might be able to explore some things in. And so later on today, I think you're going to be hearing uh, about a project that Allison is doing that, that we're collaborating on about um, thinking about an underlying neurological basis of human imagination. And, um, and as we have, have said that there's this, uh, as Allison was mentioning, you know, it's, it would be an interesting thing to be able to think about human imagination comparatively. And so here's these great, uh, these great sculptures by the Kennis brothers depicting uh, early Homo sapien and Neanderthals. And, um, you know, can we think about some ways in which the, the, uh, the Homo sapien differs in some capacities from our cousins or early humans? You know, we know from early humans, you know, we start to, see, you know, we see this artifactual record um, that uh, the Venus of Willendorf, we see other examples that go continuously back in time and from other places, and even some examples from very long ago. Um, and, uh, and whether or not these are kind of extrapolated, we have always made little um, f uh, fertility goddess figurines, um, or perhaps we're always looking for fertility goddess f uh, figurines. Um, this idea that you know, humans have been making uh, symbolic culture for a long time is one of the underlying things that we think about with imagination. And even now we start to find new kind of things that, that help to uh, fill out that story. So seeing that there are Neanderthal, uh, just things that we're now attributing to Neanderthals as part of their symbolic culture. So might there be ways, besides looking at the artifactual records, to think about human imagination by looking more directly at the underlying biology of these things? And so Allison is like a, a magician, as far as I'm concerned. He has come up with these ways in which he can do something quite extraordinary, which is take uh, human stem cells. And on the left, we have human stem cells that have grown uh, brain organoids, and on the right we have those, those stem cells, but they've been coaxed with in, to have Neanderthal genes that then express Neanderthal neurology. And so on the right we have Neanderthal brains. And, um, and so what we're looking to do is then test them in relationship to how, what kind of anticipatory responses they may have to different stimulating environments and see what kinds of differences they, they have. And you can already see there are some morphological distance, differences that are quite evident. So not only looking at the kind of neurological structure, I want to give a very quick example of something at a little higher order to thinking about at the cognitive structure 
where we're looking at other aspects that I think are underlying components of our imaginations. And one of them is, is spatial navigation. And so understanding how you are in space and what space consists of has obviously been a very important part of you know, most species' survival. Um, here, what we, what we have started to learn is that we have two mechanisms of how we think about space. One in which we're egocentric and we kind of think the world reorients itself around us, and one that's allocentric, where we think the world is uh, uh, in, a, in a fixed uh, uh, coordinate space and we reorient ourselves to it. Now, we, bo- we, we use both these mechanisms, and that in fact, when we kind of switch between them, is one in which is a, a, a place where we really have to open our eyes and kind of re-understand what our relationship to the world is. Now, it turns out those two kinds of experiences excite different parts of the brain, and we can sense that with uh, EEG devices. So we've been working with a a team of of neuroscientists to develop uh, virtual worlds in which that have kind of novel structure where we can try to directly switch you into going from one navigational scheme to the other. And we do that by what you're seeing an example from in a video of this experience. You embody one of these avatars, you have a navigational task you have to do in this environment, and we radically change it in a very uncanny way to try to keep you stimulate to keep you highly stimulated in your spatial response to making a coherent experience from this environment. Um, and um, but of course, uh, I'll maybe just wait till the last clip plays here. Um, and doing that, people have to. Uh, we sense what kind of uh, navigation they're using, and then try these tricks to trick them to switch them into the other. But you know, I also want us to be aware of this idea that we, you know, only that we. Can, it's easy easy for us to study humans in a certain way. But we can also fall into this kind of circular trap of, of human exceptionalism, you know, that, uh, that we're the only thing with imagination or, you know, and so, so I think there are, certainly we are exceptional in many ways, but, but trying to characterize and understand where it makes sense to kind of think about what's different from us versus other species is a, is a critical issue, you know. So, for instance, I know my dog has this amazing imagination, you know. Every time... I try and I pretend to throw the ball. It imagines that I've thrown the ball. And, uh, and I've done this with that dog, you know, a thousand times. But there's obviously something about the anticipation of, of throwing the ball that is, a, is more important for him to fail a thousand times because it allows him to succeed just a little bit better uh, the other few times that I do it. Um, but, you know... We may not even, you know, imagination, maybe there's even roots in things that don't even have uh, neurological systems. So this is a white blood cell navigating through a complex environment of red blood cells trying to chase down a, vi- a virus. And if you watch how these microbes move, you know, they seem to at times look to cut them off at the pass, you know, and anticipate they're moving one way versus the other. And this is without any kind of neuro- neurology. Um, so imagination is this tricky thing to think about, just as all these other phenomena like cognition, um, consciousness, you know, to try to think about, you know, we often bring, we first, of course, bring to these questions our own experiences and understanding, and we have to be quite imaginative to kind of think outside of that. 
And it can get us into some problems, you know. So for a long time, I, you know, I think it was one of the prevailing sentiments of, you know, Neanderthals was they didn't have a symbolic culture. And so this is from a recent uh, exhibition at the Australian Museum that talked about, you know, that they lacked the depth of symbolic and progressive thought displayed in modern humans. And that was before kind of a number of artifacts were discovered that uh, may have kind of start to make us kind of have a more complex relationship to that question. Um, so I also, you know, so in my work, I try to think about things that might be able to augment our imagination. Um, that how, and we're starting to do a lot of things with uh, uh, artificial intelligence. For the, you know, the fourth time around that artificial intelligence is suddenly the next big thing. Um, but, um, but we're working with ways to think about how to um, model aspects of human imagination through things like genetic algorithms and neural nets. And we bring to that a kind of human-centric approach. But in the end, the kind of effective, the effective measures may cause us to really come up with a completely different kind of imagination than a human-based model. Um, so the, the last thing I want to talk about in relationship with this is then how stories kind of work in this. And so we're the Clark Center, Arthur C. Clark Center. And an aspect of that is, the, is the, val, the value of science fiction as this way to kind of cause us to like radically think about new kinds of human conditions. And so some of the work we do with that, this is a, an example of a project we did with a science fiction author, Kim Stanley Robinson, and a performance artist, Marina Abramovich, where we took Marina Abramovich methods, which take, things, which take things that usually take a few seconds and try to extend them into experiences that last over a few hours. And Stan Robinson's work, who's trying to get us to understand what it would be like to, to experience a phenomena that lasted a 1,000 years, like the travel to another star. And the ability to kind of put these two temporal shifts in relationship to each other gave people a far more visceral understanding of the, of the experience of temporality. And so these things like stories and performance and ritual art um, may have been things that you know, we think really discovered once we started to you know, extend the day into the night and then, have to, and then think about what we do with that nighttime. It's, we, we come up with ways to make better sense out of everything that happened in the daytime. Um, and so these stories, why they sometimes were completely fictional and talked about worlds that never were, um, sometimes they actually you know, brought sense to things that, we've, that we previously wouldn't have connected. And of course, as we've moved forward in time, we've just come up with more and more proliferations about those campfires and you know, the more and more ways to tell stories around them. Now, it's often thought that um, language came before art. Um, but I have another theory that I think language came about so that art could be critiqued and explained. And, um, and, and this is the artist Joseph Boys trying to explain art to a dead rabbit. Um, so Picasso kind of gave us this uh, idea that, that uh, you know, he said that, you know, we all know that art is not truth. Art is a lie that makes us realize the truth. And so this is the astonishing thing, I think, that our imaginations our ability to conjure meaning from occurrences has given us this ability to create all that we've created. And so how this happened and where this will take us couldn't be more important or more exciting to think about, and I look forward to digging into that for the rest of the day. So thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.